0: You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. South Africa has come out of full lockdown. It was announced on Saturday night, I think it was. Let's get the views now of the founder of ETM Macro Advisors in the Western Cape, and that's Russell Lamberti. You've been a vocal critic, Russell of the the stance that the South African government has taken to, I suppose, social isolation and imposing themselves upon the population of South Africa. How do you feel now?
1: Oh, Lindsay, c- clearly it's, it's better than, than what we've had before. There's no question about that. Level two lockdown is better than level three, is better than level four, is better than full lockdown like we had in, in April and May. Um, but we are still uh, unsatisfied with the, the state of um, disaster that, that remains in place, that gives the government sweeping powers to, to uh, reenact more draconian lockdowns, to fast-track um, tender and procurement processes where we know almost certainly uh, tremendous amounts of additional corruption are taking place. So uh, I think it remains a, a largely unsatisfactory situation to say nothing of the fact that uh, international travel remains restricted um, a number of industries in South Africa remain hamstrung by uh, by the regulations that remain in place so that 's why um, I joined um, in a large business coalition called Business for ending lockdown endlockdown.co.za, lockdown yes. where people can really sign on and, and, and lend their voice to what we're trying to achieve and what we are trying to achieve is to is to end the state of disaster end the lockdown and really allow people as we've said as i've said on your on your show previously lindsay allow people the freedom to manage their own risks that's what's so critical about this everyone faces very different dynamics very different risk dynamics very different economic dynamics people need that freedom to be able to do that And people who feel unsafe well They're perfectly free to stay at home, wear masks, um, and take all the precautions they must.
0: Do you think there's been a malicious advantage-taking stance from certain? That's a really clumsy phrase, but do you think people have been malicious in their exploitation of the emergency measures, the the lockdown, to further their own ends financially? I mean, I'm I'm putting it nicely. In other words, are people ripping us off,
1: Lindsay? Only if only if you define malice um, as as a sort of type of greed or a type of opportunism um, yeah the, the, if you define malice in that way then it's been malicious uh, I, you know I don't know that there's necessarily a malice in the sense of you know we want to destroy the country there's a there's a deep-seated um, greed amongst amongst uh, government officials who are, who are on the gravy train um, there's there's cronyism uh, run rampant uh, and, and I'm not saying anything. That the president ha- hasn't himself admitted um, in his statement uh, just the other day. Um, he, he spent, you know, he dedicated quite a large portion of that statement to to addressing the the issue of corruption, which of course he's always going to to um, euphemise a little bit and underplay to a degree. We know that it's it's run rampant, and to to a large extent, I think that there has been something nefarious around the overprojection of the seriousness of, of this virus, certainly for, you know, we can excuse perhaps some of the early reaction, some of the early fears, but from quite early on, even in, even as far back as April, and certainly by May, we were starting to get a much clearer picture of the severity of coronavirus. And it's at that point that we needed to see a drastic downscaling of estimates of what was needed in terms of healthcare facilities and hospital beds and so on. That didn't really happen um, and, and you do get the feeling that a lot of the fear mongering has been justified to, um, t- to enact uh, you know, or to, to channel funds towards healthcare facilities, beds. And of course, that comes with big contracts, uh, big tenders. Mm. And we know that uh, there's been overpaying for PPE equipment. For, for all kinds of uh, uh, goods and services, this is how the corruption gravy train works. So, you know, this has been this has clearly been taking place, um, and uh, as as I said earlier, it, it's high time that it ends now. You, you've not only got tremendous corruption taking place, you've got many many people really struggling. And if I may quickly just just to conclude this little soliloquy here, um, on, on 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 the lockdown website, uh, which is endlockdown.co.za. If you go to endlockdown.co.za forward slash stories, yeah, you'll see over a thousand stories of people who've signed up to the campaign. Um, short little paragraph stories of how the lockdown has affected them. Lindsay, there is such a human element to what we've what we've just lived through. People have, have been suffering, people are suffering with mental health issues, financial issues, they're they're racked with debt, um, their businesses are are underwater. There's also been tremendous accounts of, of heroism and, and, and you know you know tremendous stories of, of, of the human will uh, coming through and people are helping one another. People are sacrificing, entrepreneurs sacrificing to to keep their employees employed and, and fed and their families fed. It's just been an incredible time, but these stories are harrowing as well, and and people should really go on and check that out and read that, because this has such a human element
0: to it. Okay, we'll have a look at that, and you can give us that uh, address again at the end of this interview. Let's broaden this issue, if we can, Russell, because I have become incredibly despondent about the leadership of politicians worldwide, whether it be Donald Trump. We know about that. He's not a leader. Businessmen don't make uh, political leaders, especially when they're bad businessmen, like Donald Trump. Cyril Ramaphosa is a businessman, and he's been virtually anonymous. Uh, He he comes on television occasionally and does his thing. But while I understand that we don't understand the nature of the pandemic and how to handle it, and not unless we were uh, alive in 1917, 1918, nobody knows how to deal with it. I look at Boris Johnson. I look at every other leader apart from Jacinda Ardern and she's only got 5 million people to look after so she's done well but the incompetence of the politicians and their cohorts is staggering to me and as I say it makes me despondent what about you?
1: Yeah no, I I agree I think I think we've we've certainly seen that I think we probably also ask too much of, of our politicians in the sense that that sometimes nature deals you a particular hand and you know, guess what? Uh, you can't just wave a, a policy wand and, and stop a virus. Um, and I think, to a large degree, we we, we require too much from, from single individuals. Um, you know, Lindsay, imagine it was you and me up there. You know, we'd probably flounder as well. So, so I think I think in the first instance, um, it's it's getting over this idea that that you know a, a small cabal of leaders can can guide you through everything, particularly as as complex and as invisible as, as a virus. Um, and, you know, I would even push back on, on you know, so the, the narrative has been that there's been, you know, some of these heroes like Jacinda Ardern. Um, she has benefited from the seasonality of the virus. Uh, New Zealand, as, as with many Southern Hemisphere countries, will only experience the seasonal respiratory virus problem um, in the winter. So during those summer and, and autumn months in the Southern Hemisphere, um, They didn't really uh, experience anything. She instituted a very, very hard lockdown in New Zealand. Um, But yes, it is a small, isolated country, and so it probably gets some some natural benefits. Um, But um, she's also showing herself to be very heavy-handed and and in, in some ways instituting a bit of what I would call a smiling tyranny. Um, over over the New Zealanders. And, and there's been an incredibly draconian lockdown there, as there has been in South Africa and many, many parts of the world. And we're feeling the economic consequences of this. So, you know, uh, yes, Lindsay, there's been leadership failures across the board, um, you know, from New York to South Africa to, to New Zealand, really, and, and, and all, over the, all over the place. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, what, what politicians now need to do, if they, can, if they can swallow some pride and find a face-saving path out of this, they, they, need to, they, they need to end these, these insane lockdowns. Um, they need to stop these fear campaigns. The curves have all basically run their course and flattened. There's very few places in the world that have escalating um, problems. New Zealand, ironically, might be one of those because yes. they seem to, have, to uh, have maybe delayed the inevitable um, but but a, aside from that, we're really looking at at a world of, of naturally flattening curves now. And so it is, it is absolutely critical that, that we get the show on the road, so to speak.
0: Okay. I like that phrase that you mentioned just now, a smiling tyranny from Jacinda Ardern. But one thing about New Zealand, although it's a tiny country, only 5 million people, and it's isolated, as you know, geographically, the fact is that the New Zealanders are all complicit, I think. They just say, well, yeah, if that's what we have to do, we're all one big family here, one small family here of five million people. Let's get on with it. And it seems to have worked, whereas in South Africa... And one of the things I'm going to be interviewing Jacinda Ardern hopefully in the next um, couple of weeks, I'm going to say, if this was a, a corporate environment, if being the Premier or the President or the Prime Minister of a country could be transposed to another country. For example, a small business might uh, poach a CEO uh, to its own business, which is bigger. Could she do the same thing that she has done in New Zealand, with only five million people, to, for example, the United Kingdom or somewhere else. So, in other words, like a football transfer, someone poaches yeah, yeah. her. I would say that she probably couldn't. It's because of all the things we've just mentioned: small yeah. population I, 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 and I, geographical isolation. She couldn't do it, but she's done well. Come on, she has done well. Yeah, look.
1: Well, look. No, I'm not. I'm not prepared to concede that yet. I mean, I think, as I say, I think, I think there's potentially a, a curve rise on the way for New Zealand as they've delayed things into their seasonal. You know respiratory season um, I don't know what doing well um, constitutes i think I think we can we can judge that really at the end of this year where, where we look at where we look at the impact of coronavirus and we look at the impact on the economy and, and the and the broader mortality impacts that that has. and it may well be indeed that that at that point um, Jacinda Ardern the it looks to have, you know, will look to have, will be seen to have stewarded the the, the problem very, very well. Um, and, I, and I'm perfectly prepared to accept that on the face of the evidence. I think we're in the midst of of an unfolding situation here where, we've, where we're taking uh, the, the, the impacts of the virus into consideration, but also the impacts of economic decline into consideration. We've really got to just let, let time be the judge of that. But I think your basic instinct there is absolutely correct that you can't just transpose leaders into other contexts. Uh, someone tweeted a few months ago, yeah, I wish we had Jacinda Ardern you know, leading
0: yeah.
1: the, the ANC government. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it would be a baptism of fire for Ms. Ardern if she had to, to, to head up the organization called the ANC and run <laughs> a country of 60 million very, very disparate and different people across a wide geography with you know, with huge, hugely disparate incomes and wealth uh, discrepancies, and so on. So I, I just think it's it's a totally different kettle of fish. Which is to say, indeed, that um, that any president uh, like, Ramaph- like Mr. Ramaposa, any president's job, any 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 uh, premier's job, is very, very difficult in this respect. And that is why we should stop expecting them to solve all our problems. We need to decentralise. The solving of problems. And that is a big meta theme that I'm going to continue to try and push, Lindsay, that that we can't expect a small cabal of people to solve highly complex problems. That logic is the logic of the Soviet Union. That is the logic of communism and socialism. It's let's centralize into politbureaus the the decision-making processes for very, very large and complex problems. It does not work
0: it doesn 't work in the last interview that we conducted, or was it the one before i can 't remember, but you characterized the ANC as a criminal organization, and that really got me into trouble so, so thank you very much for that. but do you still believe that <laughs> Well, uh, not only do
1: I still believe that I think it's become it 's it's, it's become common knowledge um, and and I think you know when, when when I raised that particular description amongst very serious, highly credible investors and and business folk um i mean they acknowledge it with without a hint of of hesitation um so i mean the the ANC. i mean i mean whole 300 page books um, not just one but but you know probably reaching into a few dozen now certainly a dozen or so have been written about the the entrenched corruption um the the political assassinations the I mean, just one can keep going on and on and on. So, so yes, it's a political party. Not everyone in the ANC is crooked, of course. Many, many, many of the rank and file of the party are, are really just trying their best to, to to get along, to to earn a living, to to serve in whatever way they can. But there's no question that the organisation as a whole has become captured. Has, has yeah, is captured by. The need to loot and, to, uh, and and to strip the country of, of wealth and assets for personal gain, and uh, that unfortunately is just the long and short of, of the aNC at the moment.
0: you mentioned socialism and other political ideologies, and i don 't know if you saw what Chinese President Xi Jinping said uh, earlier on well, actually within the last twenty four hours I think it was he says Marxist political economy is the bedrock for the nation 's growth. Do you find this a disturbing? statement especially given the 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 so-called war going on the cold war going on between the united states and china which is being ratcheted up do you find this a disturbing statement in other words lauding marxism
1: it's incredibly disturbing Uh, it, it should be to anyone i mean this is an ideology that has so much blood on its hands not only um you know not in the distant past in in living memory not only in living memory but in chinese living memory <laughs> you know in, in in the lifespan of of my father, um, China instituted under Mao under chairman Mao um, one of the most one of the most diabolical uh, political and economic systems that history has ever known. Um, Xi Jinping is really a disciple of of Stalin and Mao and uh, uh, admittedly uh, goes about. Things in a more sophisticated way, and has you know in many respects built this this incredible uh, behemoth of an economy um, much of it is 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 i think you know subject to to you know tremendous capital misallocation and, and excess and you know overbuilding of, of all kinds of things but nonetheless they've they 've clearly done something in China over the last thirty years. One of those things is that they've they 've liberalized actually. Um, from the, the intense Maoist, you know, heavy Marxist days. Um, the economy is more liberalized. There's more property rights in China. That is what explains China's meteoric rise to a large degree. Um, but to be harking back to, to Marxism and Maoism um, and to be instituting this kind of modern tyranny, and, and everyone knows it. Everyone knows that China is instituting this kind of modern tyranny. Minority groups, whether it's the Cantonese um, uh, or, um, or or the or the Uyghurs in, in the in the west of the country, um, you know, people are under tremendous duress from this, this this tyrannical regime. And and as a big global superpower, it does make one I think quite nervous. I suppose just to say just to finish, as to say that yes. the one thing that China is subject to is is a bit of a hemming in by other superpowers um, and nuclear ones to boot. So so China is sort of constrained on its northern reaches by Russia, it's constrained on its western reaches by India and Pakistan. Um, it's constrained on on its east side by Japan. And so it can it can meddle in, in the South China Sea and it can certainly project power in all kinds of nefarious ways and engage in cyber warfare and all that. But it is also a checked power and increasingly I think we'll have to be preoccupied with with keeping order internally rather than being able to project power externally.
0: Yeah, we mustn't become too insular because uh, the China story is very important for South Africa because of the commodity story, obviously, but also because of its influence on the rest of the world and therefore South Africa will be... It says here, listen to this, China's Marxist political economy will continue to adapt to the ever-changing domestic and international environment, but must remain the bedrock on which the nation builds its future. Um, So Marxism. The foundation of China's political economy can only be a Marxist political economy and not be based on other economic theories, he said in an article published on Saturday. He's the General Secretary of the Communist Party, as well as being the President, and also Chairman of the Central Military Commission. He's a dictator, is he not?
1: Absolutely. No, absolutely he's a dictator. There's no, there's no question. And I think that's become, again, I think fairly fairly accepted wisdom on the topic. Um, uh, Xi Jinping is a, a modern dictator, he's securing his grip on China. In the last 10 years, we've really seen a regression in, in Chinese freedom in, in the opening up of China. And I think it's one of the reasons why one's got to remain very sceptical that China is going to be a globally um, dominant superpower in the sense of it being a compelling place to, to want to copy and replicate um, and having a compelling uh, political culture that it will be able to export. Um, In in, in a way that that the United States largely was, you know, the United States has largely been a model, certainly imperfect, and certainly with its own crassness about it, but but largely a political idea, the United States, that's been quite compelling and quite exportable, um, and certainly a place that people have tried to emulate. Um, China won't be that place, and... um, uh, and, and and I guess it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be all things to all people. It just wants to be something to to you know 1.5 billion people. Um, and and I suppose if those people, by and large, you know, go along with that, then it, it lends an air of legitimacy to the whole project. Um, yes, it's not a democracy. Yes, there's tremendous clampdown on on freedoms. But you know, if they keep if they end up keeping it internal, they can build a tremendously powerful country. Um, and, and I suppose from that position of power can, to some degree, project military power and, and, and other kinds of power. So, yeah, we've got to be very, very cautious of China. And I, and I suppose the one disheartening thing, Lindsay, is that what you find in Africa is is, is a lot of um, vulnerability, I think, to, the, to Chinese influence. Yes. Um, and a lot of African countries um, borrowing money from China, pledging Key national assets as, as kind of collateral, and to some degree allowing a sort of a sort of soft colonization by the Chinese. Um, I don't think that's going to end well. I think there's going to be increasing animosities towards China and Africa. The Chinese certainly don't have much respect for the Africans as people. Um, you mean they're racist? And I, think that, I think they're I think they're pretty overtly racist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think ultimately that, that uh, that's going to sour and end badly. So, so look, it's not one-way traffic. China's not just going to have its way with the world. There's going to be a lot of resistance, uh, both from the, the, the superpowers near China, as well as from places like Africa that realize that the Chinese don't really care about them. And, and I And I hope that we see more and more resistance to Chinese influence.
0: And also they're taking advantage of the weakness of the United States of America, which is a fading superpower, of course.
1: Correct, yeah no they they absolutely are, and they're stepping into those those gaps that are being left um that that itself though is not necessarily a bad thing to the extent that it elicits um a bit more responsibility for 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 regional policing, let's say from the likes of the Japanese and the Indians and the Europeans and so on. You know the Germans have hardly spent money on their on their defence for for five or six decades now. And it's time that they do step up to the plate on that because ultimately they need to be the ones in charge of, of that Central European um, dynamic. Uh, America can't foot the ball for everyone, uh, as we're seeing. You know, it's, a, it's a highly indebted country with its own internal problems increasingly. You know, America cannot play global policeman forever. And so this is going to call forth a bit more responsibility at a regional level.
0: Let's talk about South Africa now. And I'm a simple person, so when I need to know what's going on in South Africa without reading below the headlines, I just look at the dollar rand. I look at the British pound against the rand. I look at the euro rand, and I see the euro yeah. dollar. And I can see the euro dollar now at 119. For goodness sake, it was 106 just a couple of months ago. Uh, so yeah. the, the dollar's really weak. The dollar's on a slide. And this is a massive, Great. massive influence on the everyone's economies worldwide. Uh, and I see the rand, and the rand's weak as well. Okay, it's not 19 which it was on in at the end of march but it's 1740 at the moment that tells you something people are despondent and off air i speak to people who are scathing about the economy they can't say it on air because they're proud south africans and they'd get sacked if they said it but people are really despondent at a level that i've never seen before russell
1: well, yes, Lindsay. I think I think you're absolutely spot on about reading the sentiment. And I, I suppose you know I'm someone who would get sacked uh, if I didn't say it, yes.
0: <laughs> um,
1: because because I've got to say what I think is absolutely re- realistic. Um, now you can argue with my interpretation of reality, but um, but I certainly have no qualms in, in, in saying that this is, this is an economy on its knees, run by policymakers who have absolutely no idea you know, they couldn't grow themselves, they couldn't grow an economy out of a paper bag if, if they had to. Um, it's it's so, so we were settled by, by tremendous policy dysfunction. The lockdown, of course, has been a huge catalyst in, in accelerating what I've called for many years now our de-developing trend. Um, it is depressing, Lindsay, but um, I suppose uh, one's got to face up to reality as it is. Um, most of the Fund managers I speak to are doing a lot of business, most of their business now taking money offshore. Yes. Um, and um, now is there a contrarian sort of play in all of this? Is everyone flooding just at the, at the worst possible time? Um, well, th- there's an element that that, that that could sort of cyclically be true uh, in the sense that the, the dollar is now weakening. Commodity prices are rising. The, the gold price has done very well as it has the platinum price and silver prices and so on. And there's a, there's a sense in which it's, it's now time for a dollar bear market. We've had a dollar bull market really for the last 10 years at least, if not 12 years. It's a, it's a very, very long dollar bull market that we've had. And it looks to now be rolling over, to your point. Um, and that means that it's, it's going to be hard for the RAND or for other emerging market currencies to to be, you know, real dogs Um, They're they're going to have some life left in them as long as the dollar is is weakening and as long as commodity prices are going up. South Africa is still a commodity-producing country. Um, We make it very hard for ourselves by by making the mining sector, you know, saddling the mining sector with all kinds of onerous regulations and restrictions and so on. But nonetheless, we pull the stuff out the ground. Mm. We do sell it on export markets, and, and minerals and commodities are a big chunk of our foreign revenue earnings. Um, and it 's in these sorts of cycles where where assets have gotten very cheap, where South African bond yields are very high um, where where the dollar is weakening and commodities are going up it, it, it's it 's a, it's a difficult environment to to get totally bearish on south africa right i mean it, there 's a few things that that are lining up there. I think that that 's just got to be juxtaposed against the idiosyncratic issues that South Africa has that are that are bigger or, or, or that 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 lie sort of beyond the scope of traditional market cycles, like the politics, like the policies, like the, the huge emigration wave that we see and um, that we have been seeing for a number of years and that I believe is accelerating once travel is opened up again. Um, we're unfortunately going to see a, a greater loss of skills again. These sorts of things do weigh heavily on a country. So One's got, to, one's got to try and balance these, these competing forces against each other. At the moment, they're kind of holding, they're, they're holding each other in balance and the RAND is sort of bobbling along sideways for now. And We're waiting to see where this kind of breaks over the next few months.
0: It was 14 on January the 2nd. I think it was 14.01 against the US dollar. It went to 19.34, I think it was the low. It's now 17.41. It's a tremendous move to the downside from 14 to 17.40. It's a massive, massive move and has profound implications. Um, what, what What you've described with the commodity cycle being in South Africa's favor, that's something that's out of our control. We're just takers we're not makers. We're takers when it comes to that. We can't rely on those factors if, for example, uh, because of what happens in the next six months. And given the last six months, anything could happen in the next six months. And we can't rely on those, yeah. those factors. So if something happens, if the U.S. stock market, for example, dumps because of a Democrat win in, in November – if there even is an election, who knows? Then we are so vulnerable, and it really makes me—it makes me sad. And, and just one other sort of personal anecdote here is that uh, two weeks ago, I welcomed a family from Cape Town to Rotterdam. They've moved to Rotterdam. A teacher from a very well-known school in Cape Town, the husband, a businessman who's moved his business to the Netherlands, three young children who were at school in Cape Town, who would be potentially future. Taxpayers in South Africa—they've moved, and if you replicate that yeah. thousands and thousands of times over the over the last couple of years and in the next couple of years, then you realise the extent of the malaise of South Africa.
1: Lindsay, you're hitting on the exact issue. Um, the emigration wave um, is 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 brutal for the country. Um, it is, as far as we know, uh, has become quite a multiracial. Uh, a phenomenon, um, very, you know, the best uh, skilled blacks, colored whites, Indians um, are leaving the country uh, in, in pretty steady numbers. Uh, the, the ultimate basis for wealth creation and for, for having a society that's progressing is people, is good people, skilled people, people who can bring capital to bear, in, you know, in the right way, um who then hire uh, uh lower skilled people and you get a kind of upward mobility of everyone in the country gradually over time or sometimes in in the case of uh, you know places like like Hong Kong and Singapore and some of the asian tigers over the last 50 years rapidly over time um when you get people fleeing the country um what uh, i mean this is just this is just a, a bleeding out of wealth creating potential it is devastating it is un, it is not spoken about enough it is underreported, it is understudied and um, quite frankly is, is certainly in the top three key issues um, for South Africa. South Africa is facing a desperate situation where it needs to try and retain skills. The way the government is operating at the moment, it is toxic towards re- to, to retaining good people in the country. Um, so, so I'm glad you're hitting on this, Lindsay, because it is, it is absolutely critical and to your point, is far bigger than than a commodity cycle or a rising gold price, or a weakening dollar, you know, or anything like that. It is much more structural and fundamental, and uh, it's absolutely critical. I mean, it, it, it's it's the it's more than the eleventh hour. It's 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 eleven fifty nine, in this issue, um, and I'm just not sure that anyone is taking it seriously enough.
0: No, another thing. I don't want to bring up mental health and other things that have been so almost overreported since the uh, pandemic affected all of us, but I was sitting there when I welcomed this family to to Rotterdam and I sat down and the kids were running around and uh, the, the one of the boys, I think he was 11, he came to his mother and he said, "Do you mind if I go out on my bike?" And she said, "No, of course, go ahead." She said, "Are you he said, "Are you sure it's okay because in in Cape Town" He couldn't go out on his bike on his own because either the bike would be stolen or he'd be threatened um, physically. I don't know. But he was almost apologetic in asking his mother if he could go out. And the look on his face when he came back half an hour later was was something think, to behold because he's not used to this freedom. And suddenly, and I spoke to the mother about it, she said, in the three days that we've been here, Lindsay, his personality has changed completely. And we don't understand the effect that our society, our society has on us. I haven't put that very eloquently, but you see what I mean? No,
1: Lindsay, you—I mean, what you're hitting on here is a, is a whole other episode, really. Um, but it's—it's it's absolutely profound and, and deep and important stuff. And I think it goes to the heart of what it means to be free, um, what it means to be to feel secure, and 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 in, under what conditions do we do we really thrive? Um, and I think one of the things that South Africans have always felt that they had going for them is a wonderful lifestyle. At least South Africans of a of a middle and upper middle class uh, position, they've always felt that the lifestyle is pretty good. Uh, great weather, lots of space, um, you know, uh, affordable labor that, that they can draw upon. Um, but but when safety and security diminishes to such a significant degree and you end up becoming a prisoner in your own home mm. um, and you end up having to, to, to lay out tremendous costs to keep safe over and above your taxes and so on, the lifestyle benefits really do diminish. Um, and I think more and more people are, are sensing that and feeling that. And, and I, think, I think that, you know, you're hitting on something as well, that when people do emigrate, it is difficult. It doesn't always work out for the best. And the grass isn't always greener on the other side. But it often is. It probably mostly is for a lot of people. Um, who, who find a tremendous relief when they when they get to a safe place that actually values them and values their contribution. And I, and I think that's something that South Africa has just absolutely dropped the ball on.
0: We'll leave it there, Russell. Thanks so much for your extended time. That's Russell Lamberti, the founder of ETM Macro Advisors in the Western Cape. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position